are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text today is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And it reads this way, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, or gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Thank you, Cherie, for that prayer and for your, your regular prayers, even that we don't hear. Uh, thank you, Mark, for reading the text. Thank you, Cody and John, for wringing out the, the water, uh, washing us with grace. Uh, through our worship liturgy already. Appreciate you guys so much. Um, We are continuing to walk through Paul's letter to Titus, and I did not prepare any slides, so you're going to have to struggle against your desire to go to the Mediterranean as you stare at the uh, Titus graphic most of this sermon today. Um, It's been been a real temptation to me to book a cruise um, every Sunday. in the beginning of chapter 2 of Titus, which, which John led us through last week, Paul gave us instructions for the church about godly living and discipleship. And simply put, if we could summarize what is said in verses uh, 1 through 10, every person in the church is called to live a holy life that is in contrast to the worldly culture around them in their context. It was Crete. And their holiness was to be so consistent and genuine that their enemies would have nothing evil to say about them. That's a high calling. Uh, And that can feel like a burdensome uh, thing to live up to as we ourselves examine our lives. And um, the end of chapter 2 answers and gives us some hope about why and how we can achieve this high calling of a holy life. And so logically, it would actually make sense if Paul had put verses 11 through 14 before verses 1 through 10, uh, but he didn't. And so uh, we have this connector word at the beginning of verse 11 that tells us that he's giving us an explanation. He says, for the grace of God or because the grace of God has appeared. And that signal word tells us that we should not dissociate what we read today with what we saw in previous verses. These things are connected. We are continuing the thought. We are explaining ourselves. In fact, it might have been more logical for Paul to have started here with the gospel. So as we go on today, I want you to see the theme of the verses that I want you to take away is that the grace of God disciplines us. The grace of God disciplines us. That is a paradoxical theme. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory 
idea that when investigated or explained reveals is actually true. I had a literature, literature professor in college who must have used that word hundreds of times in a single semester as we did American literature, which was heavily influenced by Puritanism and the Puritans, of course, by the Bible. And although she was not a believer, she repeatedly found occasion to celebrate and marvel in the paradoxes of Christianity. For example, that to become exalted in Christianity, you must be humbled, or that death gives way to life, or that power is perfected in weakness, or that poverty means riches. You get the idea. There are plenty of paradoxical ideas in Christianity, and the paradox here today is that the grace of God disciplines and the conflict in our thinking is that grace is warm and freeing and forgiving and not demanding, but discipline sounds hard and challenging and requires much. Before I use the Bible to show you how it could be true that grace disciplines us, I want to look first to Titus for a definition of what the grace of God is. What is the grace of God? Fast forward just a few verses to verses 13 and 14, Paul tells Titus, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice a few things from these verses. Paul first expressly says that Jesus is God. There are not a lot of clear places about the Trinity in the Bible, but I'd say this is one of them. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not just some agent on an errand for God, but God himself, the actor in the work of the scene of salvation. Next, he says, that God in Jesus freely gave himself for us. The Father gave us the Son, and the Son gave us himself. He gave us himself when he humbled himself and took on flesh, come, come into this world to live in a broken place, to learn to obey his Father as a man in our flesh, to suffer through our cursed condition, and most significantly, to accept God's own wrath and anger for our sin and become a sacrifice in our place. He gave himself. We should also pause here and remember who we are in this transaction. Entrusting a gift or something valuable to a deserving person is not a gift. It's what that person is due. But a gift to an undeserving person, that is grace. Grace is when we get something, or in this case, someone that we do not deserve. Grace is also not getting what we do deserve, which would be hell. We're not worthy to receive that grace, not even a little bit. We're described elsewhere in the Bible as rebels and enemies of this gracious God, yet he chooses to show grace to us, even the worst sinners. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that makes his grace all the more remarkable Third, look at verses 13 and 14 again. It says that his purpose in giving himself to us was to purchase us out of our lawlessness 
Many of us cannot imagine utter lawlessness, but lawlessness is chaos. It is anarchy. It is every man for himself all day and all night. And imagine the pain and the suffering that comes from living in that condition. It could be a hell on earth. 1 John 3, 4 says simply, sin is lawlessness. When we sin, we are defying God. And here Paul says that we are saved from all of that, all kinds of lawlessness. So there's not a sin that is beyond God's saving reach. Paul is saying that Jesus, in his compassion, would rescue us from that hell that is our sin. And next, he says that Jesus not only rescued us, but redeems us for his own possession. He makes us something new, his treasure. We are given a new purpose and a new identity. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that we are Jesus' bride. We are precious to him. He's cleansing us and purchasing us by his blood so that we belong to him, to serve him, to honor him, to live with, with him and for him. And he even gives us the desire to change and start doing what he commands, making us what he says is zealous for good works. We'll talk about that more in a few moments. So returning to verse 11, all of that good news about our redemption is the grace of God that has appeared in the person of Jesus. And so I may at times use the word the grace of God or the gospel interchangeably. I mean the same thing. And Paul tells us <clears throat> in Titus that this grace which has appeared brings salvation for all people. And just like we read last week, uh, there are instructions given to the old and the young, to uh, <clears throat> servant and master, to the women and to the men. Everyone is recipient or allowed to participate in this grace and this salvation. It's available to anyone who will receive it. And so now that we understand what Paul is talking about when he says the grace of God, I want to look at how grace does this strange work of disciplining us. Paul says that when we have been confronted by God's grace, it not only pardons us and brings salvation, but also transforms our lives. So God does not just rescue us from sin's effects, but he <clears throat> gets us out of sin and gives us a holy way to live. In some people's minds, grace is something that we need when we want to be saved, but it's not something that we need after salvation comes. They might think that we need grace to be delivered out of a former way of disobedience, but not so much for new life as a Christian. But that's not true. Even as Christians, and even on our very best days, we need a generous measure of God's grace. Jerry Bridges wrote in a book called The Disciplines of Grace, the gospel is meaningful for us only to the extent that we realize and acknowledge that we are still sinful. The gospel is for Christians maybe even especially for Christians. I want to ask you, do you feel that? Do you, do you know that to be true? Are you aware of abiding and remaining sin in your life that needs sanctification? I used to imagine that the fight against my sin and my flesh would become easier as I matured and got older. It is not. Just as I find victory and rest over one sin, I have the capacity to realize 
there's some other sin that's gone unchallenged in my heart, something else of which I was not aware. And I believe that the gospel of grace will mean more to a mature Christian than to a baby Christian because the mature Christian is that much more aware of how much he needs God's grace. If you're a Christian who's not regularly thinking about your need of God's grace, I fear one of two things for you. One might be that you're proud and you're not finding your righteousness in Christ, but you're finding your righteousness in your satisfactory performance. The second thing I fear would be that you might be so guilt-ridden and devastated by the sense of your failure to measure up that you don't know God's grace. And in either of those cases, you're operating in a performance-based mentality rather than living in the rest that comes from knowing God's grace for you. The gospel of God's grace gives us bearings about reality. It tells us that we are justified in Jesus and in Jesus alone and that we can't add to his work or his righteousness. According to Paul, the message of God's grace must and will have an ongoing impact on us if we're truly going to be sanctified. And so he tells Titus, the grace of God trains us, depending on your translation. It might say instructs us. NIV says it teaches us. None of those words are wrong, but I do want to elaborate a little bit. Uh, Training, for me, evokes this mentality of athleticism and disciplining your body for performance and endurance in a sport. Instructing or teaching makes me think of a classroom, makes me think of being given information, receiving it, digesting it in a lecture or a class. And there's nothing incorrect about uh, these translations that the grace of God trains, instructs, teaches. They're right. But I do not want you to have an athletic field or a classroom in your mind as your metaphor for how to process what this means that God's grace disciplines us. I want you to look at another place in Paul's writing where another form of the same verb is used, and that's Ephesians 6, 4. You may already be familiar with this passage, but it it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the contrast to uh, an unkind or an an overbearing father Uh, disciplining from anger would be one who's generous and lavish with love and disciplining from that place instead. This is a different scene than a classroom or an athletic field to think of discipline this way. We're not on the field, we're not at a desk, but we are at home at rest in our father's lap. I think this makes her Understanding of Titus 2.12 much richer, this word choice, whether you translate it instruct or teach or train, it should evoke in us our understanding of a likeness to kind parental discipline. Our church is concluding a six-week parenting class for people in our community that's called Families Count. Part of that curriculum, um, it's it's very uh, convicting to me every time we walk through it, is this need for parental discipline. And when Tara and I lead the class, we make a big distinction between the word punishment and discipline. We stress that discipline is not punishment. 
we tell the parents in the class and we tell ourselves that true discipline is an act of love. It reveals a kind intention to protect and preserve and set the child on a straight path, not to leave the child feeling pain or suffering, feeling guilt or shame about wrongdoing. The goal of discipline is to make a disciple. It's in the word. (laughs) You see disciple in discipline. We want somebody who is taught by the Lord. And so discipline is not punishment for punishment's sake. Discipline is not payback. Discipline is not in-house karma. Discipline is not you're going to learn how to respect me. Discipline is not modify your behavior so that we look good on the surface. That's not discipline. Discipline that is like God the Father is motivated by and manifests kindness. It reveals a heart of grace and compassion that celebrates restoration and forgiveness. Hebrews 12.6, quoting the proverb, says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if we're not disciplined by God, the Bible says we're illegitimate. We're not his children. We don't belong to him. So discipline is an evidence of grace. How are we disciplined by God? Just a few things that come to my mind. Consistently, we're disciplined consistently. He will not let us remain in our sin. He will come after us with his spirit and conviction, maybe even human intercession to correct us. He also disciplines us purposefully. His declared will in the Bible is that we be sanctified, that we be made holy. And so anything that he uses as a means of discipline is for that purpose of making us holy. He does it discipline personally. He never leaves us or forsakes us, even when we are experiencing discipline. Psalms 139 says, if we make our bed in the depths, he is there. He will not leave us. No amount of suffering, even during discipline, could ever separate us from God's love. And he disciplines us gently. Psalm 23 says, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. So God the Father-like discipline makes a child know and feel loved and secure in his favor. And this is hard to accomplish on a human level. I have failed my children many times. But disciplining from a heart of love and with love is possible by God's grace. And we should be parenting that way if we are God's children ourselves. So back to Titus 2.12, when we see this word trains, teaches, instructs, the grace of God trains us, conjoined with God's grace, we can put these ideas together and hopefully better understand how this is not a self-contradiction in terms. The same grace of God that redeems us from sin also disciplines us and trains us in godliness. And so the next question would be, to what are we disciplined? What, what is the goal of this training? It says the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of God, our Savior. So first, Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to say no. That's what it means to to renounce ungodliness. I, I prefer the NIV here. I like that. The grace of God teaches us to say no, to deny, to renounce. This is a strong, emphatic 
word. Visually, you should picture yourself in this dramatic scene where you are refusing to consent to something and you are walking away, dropping the mic. That's how emphatically and willfully Paul is saying that we are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. Ungodliness is an interesting word, and we often throw it around casually. For example, we might say, what is that ungodly smell? Or we might use it as this broad brush description for all kinds of really bad sin. But ungodliness is itself a sin. It's a specific sin. It is the refusal to think about and acknowledge God, even though we know who he is and how we ought to honor him. In Romans 1.18, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So God feels really strongly about ungodliness. It angers him. It's further explained in Romans 1.21 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. That is ungodliness. Knowing God, but not honoring him or giving him thanks that he's due. It is the failure to acknowledge God as God. It is excluding God from the equation of life. It is, interestingly, the default way that we all live apart from God. Christians can even be ungodly if they go through their day or their week without thinking about God and what he says. So even a moral unbeliever is ungodly because even if they're merciful and generous and kind and patient, they're not so because of God. They're not so for God. And Paul says that God's grace at work in our hearts teaches us to renounce this way of rebellious, independent, godless thinking. Paul also says that God's grace teaches us to say no to worldly passions. These are numerous I can't even name them all, but just some examples would be the desire for power, lust, materialism, vanity, boasting. All of these sinful impulses may be evident in and celebrated as good in the world, but they are also natural to our flesh. They are things that we struggle with even without the world's encouragement. James 4, 1 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Worldly passions can be encouraged in the world and a temptation from the world, but they are native to our hearts. Paul tells Titus that God's grace teaches us to say no to those passions, to deny ourselves. That's a word that we all probably need this morning. Moreover, Paul says God's grace teaches us to replace our ungodliness and our worldliness with a new desire to live a holy life, the kind that Paul has described in chapter 1 concerning the conduct of elders, and earlier in chapter 2, as John Tavius preached last week, applications for literally all of us to live a godly life. Paul says that God's grace trains us to say yes Not just to say no, but to say yes to self-control, to uprightness and godliness. One commentator I studied pointed out that these three attributes in verse 12 reflect our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to our neighbor, 
and our relationship to God, self-control, the self, uprightness, our neighbor, godliness to God. This is now the fifth time in the book of Titus that self-control is mentioned. Note that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not just human grit and determination. It's not natural. It's a work of the Spirit. It's an act of self-denial. It is counseling yourself by the Spirit against your carnal urges. It's saying no to what you really want to say out loud that would dishonor others or God. It's saying no to an impulse to to pursue temptation. It's hard for me to think about self-control without also thinking about the internal conversations I have to have with myself. And maybe you do the same thing. You have to counsel yourself through your temptations. That's the work of the Spirit, giving us self-control. Next, it says that we are to say yes to uprightness. The same word was used as a character qualification in chapter 1. An upright life is one that cannot be blamed. So it broadly means living in the light with your neighbors so that you can't bring any shame upon the gospel or God or his church. John Tavius preached through this last week, but chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 10, it's repeatedly encouraging us not to allow the enemy to have something bad to say, not to put us to shame, to live in a wholesome way. And then finally, instead of ungodliness, we're called to godliness. I hear the adjective godly a lot. I think it's kind of a Southern Christian vocabulary word. But what do we mean when we say that that someone is godly? A godly person is what your grandmother might call a God-fearing one, somebody who goes to church and keeps their nose clean. But that's not quite the same thing that the Bible means when we talk about godliness. A godly person, in contrast to ungodliness, which I just described a minute ago, looks for God in all things, acknowledges God in all circumstances, and thanks him and worships him as he is due to be thanked and worshiped. That's godliness. A godly person is not just a moral person, but one whose life is characterized by thoughts about, acknowledgement of, and praise to our God. It's Godward thinking. In addition to these characteristics of a life trained by grace, Paul says in verse 13 that the grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, past tense, but also will appear again to us. Jesus is coming. It seems perfectly understandable to me that if a person has been so loved and changed by Jesus, that his grace will cause them to eagerly long for his return. I'll admit sometimes I just want Jesus to come back to escape the difficulties of life and trouble. You might feel that way too, but Paul is talking about not just an escape, but a joy of simply seeing and beholding Jesus in his glory. Finally, for us, for the first time, 
Jesus' return should be the longing of every true believer's heart. So we've seen that the Bible says that God's grace disciplines us, trains us. But how? How does that work? You might be asking, what does grace really have to do with any of the moral imperatives of the Bible, like, like we just read? Doesn't this changed behavior of ours require at least some effort from us to say no to sin and to say yes to what is good? Yes, it does require some effort on your part, believer. You cannot demonstrate self-control without a conscious struggle against your self-will. You cannot think godly thoughts without purposefully setting your mind on God. So Paul's not saying that we just passively lie on the couch, drink some grace Kool-Aid, and hope that the medicine works. Just wait for the Holy Spirit to wash over us and, and change us like, like magic. Effort is necessary, but we must understand that our right effort our right effort to pursue godliness is motivated by grace. If you do not understand that discipline for godliness comes by grace, you will default to trusting in your own performance, your own grit, your own strength, which is weak. And as I mentioned before, your personal performance will leave you either feeling proud or defeated depending on the day. If you're having a good day, you're trusting in your strength. But if you're having a bad day, nothing can rescue it. You feel, feel like it's wasted. That's what trusting in yourself looks like. The rest of the New Testament is consistent with this interpretation of Titus 2. One example would be 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Similarly, in Romans 2, Paul explains that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And what these verses mean is that the knowledge of Jesus' love for you and kindness towards you urges you to active obedience and repentance from sin. Christian, when you consider and reflect on God's loving kindness to you, your response, led by the Holy Spirit, will be, I want to please him. When you've been nourished by the gospel and reminded of what Jesus has done for you, do you say, I should just go sin profoundly now. I should find the first opportunity I can to do whatever I want. No. Grace is not a license. The grace of God instead humbles us and makes us tender and brokenhearted about sin. Even the thought of sinning becomes, I can't, I don't want to think about it. That's what God's grace does. It changes our heart to say, how can I please you, Lord? My life belongs to you. Knowing the love of God in Jesus mysteriously but thoroughly changes our hearts and gives us new desires. So when Paul writes that the grace of God teaches or disciplines us, he is saying that the grace of God gently and reliably motivates us to do good works. This experience of grace is something that cannot just happen once to us, but must happen again and again. The grace of God continually trains us, ongoing. Just like a loving parent is never done 
repeatedly teaching and shepherding a child in the way he should go. God, by his grace and kindness, shows us the works that he has prepared for us to walk in and leads us to walk in them. He even makes us zealous for these good works, verse 14 says. By contrast, if we are relying on our self-determination and effort to be motivated, we will have to plaster on a smile and fake the zealous part of zealous for good works. You can exert a lot of personal effort to obey God from your own strength. See the Pharisees, for example. But you cannot fake the fruit of the Spirit. Enduring and genuine humility, joy, love for others, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, sincerity. All of those things will be apparent in the life of a person who is working from the security that they are in Christ and in his grace. Beloved, don't you want to obey God from that joy? and rest of grace. Chapter 2 concludes in verse 15 with the following encouragement to Titus. This is a personal word from Paul to Titus. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Among these things are the truths that we've just said about God's grace. Paul wants Titus to share this with the church, to teach them of the power of God's grace to train. It is foundational to what Paul is describing in the book of Titus as sound teaching. It must be declared, Paul says. It has to be taught in the church. Titus could model a godly life, and he could demonstrate good character, but the explanation for it had to be spoken and explained. Paul uses two different verbs for how Titus should speak to the church. He says exhort and rebuke, and those things are not the same. An exhortation is a strong appeal of encouragement to action. You could say what I'm doing right now is an exhortation to you. But a rebuke is a word of a firm correction. Both are necessary. Both were necessary in this this context in Crete, but they depend upon the circumstances of the audience. Paul knows this. Titus understands this. So whether he is exhorting or rebuking, Paul is telling Titus to speak with authority, not let anyone dismiss him because he's been sent by Paul under Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus. That's the explanation of the text. I want to make some application now, and this is a rhetorical question that I'd like for you to answer honestly to yourself. What usually motivates you to obey God? Answer honestly. What usually motivates you to obey God? Your answers are going to vary. They may be some combination of these things that I'm about to mention. But you might say, I obey God because I'm afraid of what consequences might come into my life if I don't. Or you might be operating from this mentality, what if I get caught? I don't want to get caught, so I'm going to obey. A second response might be that you say you obey him because you hope that God will reward you 
or keep blessing you if you obey. And another response might be, you just want to be noticed and appreciated by others for your faithfulness and your hard work. And if any of those answers are sounding like your answer, I thank you for your honesty with yourself. But each of those answers would reveal to you and me that we might be relating to God and to others on the basis of our performance, not on the basis of grace. You might be seeking to be approved of and by God because of your flawed obedience rather than obeying him, even imperfectly, from the unwavering approval that you already have in Jesus because he had already worked for you. And so if you're afraid of possible penalties for not obeying, I want you to hear this. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God completely already. He's paid for your sin, and there's nothing else that can be done. Nothing else needs to be done to make you righteous. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to serve slavishly. You're a child of God. Trust in God's grace revealed in Jesus. And further, there is a more joyful way to be motivated to do God's will. Consider the kindness of Jesus for sinners like yourself. And when you remember his love for you, do you still want to sin? No, you want to obey. If you were the second person I described and you're hopeful of benefiting or somehow gaining because of your obedience, hear this. Jesus gave himself for you already to redeem you. He could do no more than that. He is your reward. He is an infinite source of joy and delight. And you can have all that you want of him now and forever. And it's not dependent upon whether you're having a good day or a bad day for him. He will love you no more, no less. You can rest in his grace. If you're the third person and you just want to be noticed and appreciated for your effort, take heart. God has noticed you. He noticed in this way, though, that your works for him are like filthy rags compared to his holiness. He noticed that you needed to be cleansed. And so he sent his only son to pour out his precious blood for you to make you clean. He counts you now among the righteous. He notices you. You're precious to him if you believe in Jesus. And so take heart. You are cherished. You are loved. You can work from that identity and not from some other identity of your own making. Second application is just about God's discipline. I've spoken a good bit about it today. I want to ask, are you being disciplined by God in this season of your life right now? Do you sense that God is, is disciplining you? And what is your heart's response to that experience of God's discipline? Is it hard to see God's grace? The Bible acknowledges that discipline is momentarily painful. And the presence of pain, though, does not mean that God does not love you anymore. He is working sovereignly through all things for your good if you are his child. And he can even redeem your sins and the sins of others that have been committed against you. So, believer, if you're suffering through discipline this morning, if you're experiencing correction, trust that you are in good hands. Receive the discipline from the posture of 
your status as a recipient of God's unflinching grace. And finally, I want you to ask, because Titus invites us to ask, what's the status of your sanctification? What is the trajectory of growth in your life? We know that God wants us to become more like Jesus. Are we? And how so, if we are? Is God's grace teaching you to say no to sin and teaching you to say yes to all that's good? If you are seeing the fruit of that in your life, praise the Lord. It's from Him. It's the power of His Holy Spirit at work in you. But if you're not, will you look to Jesus right now and be refreshed and renewed so that you can live a holy life for him? Titus says that the grace of God has appeared in him, the person of Jesus Christ. God has freely offered his son to you and only requires that you look upon him in faith to be forgiven of your sin. And your sin includes your lack of discipline your lack of growth, your lack of godliness, your lack of self-control. He's faithful even if you are not. He's a gracious and merciful Savior. So come to him now. If you sense yourself distant, come to him and be changed by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this word. Um, Thank you for exposing to us how you love us, for proving your love for us in Jesus. Thank you for showing us that there is a way to be transformed and changed by your grace, that it's not dependent upon waking up on the right side of the bed in the morning or trying really hard, but it's all dependent on trusting in what's already been done in Jesus. He's enough. He is our righteousness. He is our rest. He is our peace. So when you call us to do hard things, when you call us to obey, when you tell us to be holy, Lord, help us to look back to Jesus, our holiness, our righteousness. Help us to remember what he's already done and accomplished for us. Remind us that we can't add to that. Help us to trust that he's enough. God, I pray that your word and spirit would discipline us, teach us, train us in godliness and righteousness, that you would make us the people that you want us to be, that we would have right motives. God, change our hearts. Lord, don't let us do this selfishly. Don't let us trust in our flesh. Please, Lord, humble us. Remind us that we need grace now. We need grace tomorrow. We need grace until you come. Help us to trust and rest in that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.